Welcome to this episode of Right Stuff with me, Chris Fitzgerald, and produced by Daniel O'Connor through the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Now, the next few episodes are going to be interviews that I conducted at Listowel Writers Week. I owe a huge thanks to Maura Logue and all the organisers of the Writers Week for being really so accommodating to us down there. We got some great interviews, including an ex-prisoner, an ex-priest, a Cork songwriting legend, literary heavyweights, including in this episode, Dame Margaret Drabble. In a career spanning 55 years, Margaret Drabble has established herself as one of the great British writers, chronicling lots of pivotal life events through the always engaging characters that she writes. She's also written non-fiction, including a number of biographies, and was the editor of the Oxford Companion to English Literature. It was a real honour to talk to Margaret and discuss, among other things, the recent referendum on abortion in Ireland, relating to her 1965 novel, The Millstone. So please enjoy this chat with Dame Margaret Drabble. Dame Margaret Drabble, it's great to have you on Right Stuff. Thanks a million for joining me. Um, you were just saying this is your first time at Listowel. How has it been for you? I've enjoyed it very much indeed. I've met a lot of people and I've been to events and I've done an event and I've walked around the town. It's been very enjoyable. Yeah, and you, you do get out to an awful lot of events, uh, more recently I think especially. Um, how is it for you to kind of get out and start meeting people as opposed to the, the solitude of the desk and the writing? It's much more fun, of course. Yeah. yeah. And is, is writing fun for you though? Is it something that you take pleasure in? It absorbs me. It keeps me occupied. It sort of keeps the brain moving mm. but I wouldn't say I always enjoyed it because sometimes it goes very badly and you're not enjoying it then. And is it like would you call it a slog for you sometimes are you are you a determined writer does it take uh, a lot of discipline for you still? Over the years I have been very determined um, over a, a long writing career I've been very very determined but I'm now what you might call in retirement so I don't make myself work so hard. Mm. Since 1963 was your first novel, I think. So, and throughout that time, 18 novels, I think, and yes, a few yeah. autobiographical or biographical books. Yeah. And one book, I have a few of your books here, but I, one book I didn't bring was the uh, Oxford Companion to English Literature because it's too heavy for me to bring. Really, it's a, it's a doorstopper, you might call it. Um, that you were working on that for five years. That took a lot of my life. Yes. How do you reflect on that time now? It was very enjoyable. Um, it, now, that was enjoyable in a more simple way than trying to write fiction, because every day you knew you'd added a bit more to the edifice and you were moving forwards. Mm-hmm. When you write fiction, sometimes you think you're going backwards or it's not working out or getting into trouble with it. But doing The Oxford Companion was a sort of an incremental job. Each day you'd done a bit more of the alphabet, and, and I really enjoyed that. And it was collaborative as well. It was working with other people. Yeah. I mean, it is true that when other people didn't send in their copy, I had to do it myself. So quite a lot of things I did myself that I didn't really expect to. Mm. But um, it was good having interchanges with people. And um, in fact, Colette Bryce, the poet who was here today, she did some of my contemporary poetry entries in, in, in a revise, yes. Mm. So it kind of created a network for you as well, I guess. It created a network, and people introduced me to other people. Some of the people I never actually met, um, but the first edition we did, the computer hadn't been invented. It had, well, it was just being invented. So we did it all in triple-entry type, on, type, on machines. Mm. Um, but then the email came in, and later revisers, revisers were done with um, people sending in copy mm. through, through the email, mm. yeah. So you're kind of tracking um, through that as well, the, the changes in technology, which have influenced writing as well over the years. Um, has it made a big difference? To me? Yeah. It certainly has. Yeah. I mean, it's much easier to um, be in touch with people, to um, um, extend your, your frame of reference. I mean, I, I don't know how we manage to do research without 
all the quick ways now that you can just find dates and names and read on about something. It's quite extraordinary how easy it is to do research. This can be annoying in that the research can be too easy so that you just find things without any um, sweat or tears mm. and, and it becomes facile. And also everybody else can find it too so you don't yeah. have that sense of owning a bit of really hard-won territory that you've done by going to libraries and going through um, archives. That no longer exists in quite the same way. Um, but it has extended mm. the range of one's acquaintance in every sense. Yeah, and when everything is so instantly accessible, when you can access nearly every piece of information, I think people are less likely to try to do it then. It's strange, isn't it, the way that our access to so much information has made us almost more reluctant to go there. I think, like you're saying, when you can access archives yeah. and libraries and put in that effort and the satisfaction of getting the information, then yeah. you're probably more likely to do it. It's a question of motivation. I mean, if you really need something, you will do it either on the internet or if you can't get it sort of digitally, you will go to the library. Mm. And I do go to the library sometimes because, it, oddly enough, not all books are online. And mm. also, I, I don't like really reading on the screen. For I, I quite like reading on the Kindle or the e-book because the technology is easy on the eye. But on the screen, I can't read for long on, on the screen. So I will then go to the library if it's not, not a book I can afford to buy. Yeah, and what, um, what are you reading at the moment, Margaret? Um, I'm reading at the moment. I just bought last night, on the recommendation of somebody here, Henry James's last novel, which I bought on my Kindle at midnight, as it were, yeah. and I shall be reading that. But I'm in the middle of a novel by um, Tessa Hadley, and I've just read the entire oeuvre of Muriel Spark because it's her centenary year mm. and I've been writing a piece for the Times Literary Supplement. So I'm absolutely up to date with Muriel Spark scholarship. So you're still a very active reader. If you're I, mean, I read a lot. I read yeah. too much, really. <laughs> can, is that possible? It is, it is. <laughs> so can you, um, like, as you've been writing throughout your career, I think, uh, Margaret, your fiction has kind of reflected what's been happening in your life as well. Um, what extent has have you gone to fiction to write about yourself? Do you always do you always realise that you might be writing about yourself even through fictional characters? I think I know I'm writing about myself, but I also believe I'm writing about the times I am living in. I, it, my books have, on the whole, followed my own age group, but I'm not just writing about me. I'm, I'm writing about a whole kind of. Um, cohort of people who are moving through time together, and one of the very good responses I get here in Listowel, for example, is people who come up to me and say, I'm your age and I've been reading you all my life and I know exactly where you're going and uh, where we've been through together. And I, I like that. So it's not, it's not just me, me, me. It, it's us, really. It's more us and where, how we have responded to the pressure of history and changing attitudes. Changing history and changing attitudes, and, but still some of your earlier books are still very relevant today. Like I'm thinking of The Millstone, 1965. I, yeah. And... You know, just recently here in Ireland, that has kind of, in my own mind, kind of come up as, I mean, the, the main character, Rosamond, in that is going through what you might call an unwanted pregnancy yes. at the start, anyway. Unintended, for Unintended, sure. yeah. And, I mean, just here in the past couple of weeks, that's, in my mind, that story came up, I mean, when we had, we just had, as you know, a, know. a referendum about abortion in Ireland. So even though you might be thinking that people your age are tracking them through their lives, I think people 
Rosman's age are starting to go into those now. Are you seeing that as well? I, I do see that. Mm. I mean, that novel has been very interesting from that point of view in that in England, the abortion laws have been liberalised for so long that some students just don't understand what her problem was. They can't understand why, why she felt any sense of um, difficulty with it. Um, and in the States, I had exactly the same reaction. But I think in the States now, there is some sort of retrograde motion. So there will be some states within the States where the millstone will be pertinent all over again. Mm. But I'm so glad things have gone the way they did here. I, I, I just find that the, the harshness of the abortion laws were really, really distressing. No woman wants to have an abortion. Of course, it's not, mm. a, it's not a positive choice. But the other choices are sometimes so much worse that, mm. that the freedom to choose is all important. Yeah, there were phrases... I mean, it kind of brought up in a very... It's a very emotive topic, and the debate in Ireland was very emotive as well. And the language that was being used, you know, phrases like abortion on demand is... Yes, it's, it's, it's a, it, but it is a very complex topic because the the last novel but one that I wrote was called The Pure Gold Baby which is about a child with learning difficulties and of course I can quite see the feeling of vulnerability and exposure of parents with children with difficulties who they might have had aborted. I actually personally know a little boy who was born with um, um, I can't remember the correct term for Cleft palate, cleft oh, yeah, palate. Yeah. We used to call it hair lip, which yeah, of course yeah. was not meant to. Not PC. And uh, who is the most charming child, but they were offered an abortion and refused it. Mm. So, you know, there are some very, very difficult cases mm. and you can point to them on either side of the divide of and say, this human situation went that way, that one went that way. And um, it, it's, it, it's complex and naturally people feel very strongly about it. Of course, yeah. And are these, um, these kind of complex topics in might say kind of heavy issues have they've come up an awful lot in your fiction and do you as a writer then do you get people coming up to you with their personal stories and saying you know I read that book and it related to my experience I've made one or two very good personal friends really? through that kind of contact yes yeah. because they are personal issues in, in quite a in, in, in several of my books and people do mm. do they share their stories and they kind of suggest things that you might treat in future days so yeah. it's good it's good yeah and as you say now as you're retiring from writing I presume you're writing less is there still that um that urge for you to to write I mean or has that become less as well it's um it's very difficult to say I, I the, the actual structuring of a novel has always been problematic for me and I feel I don't really want to write a whole novel I, I, I've been enjoying doing critical essays but I, I, had a, um, I had a very great tragedy last year. My daughter died. And when I write a novel, it's always about what's with me. And that's what's with me all the time. And I don't feel I want to write about Becky. Um, mm. I, I've started writing a diary about how I feel about how, how things were. And maybe that might evolve into something else. But for me now, it's just a question of me talking to myself and to her. Mm -hmm. But I can't see it moving into a novel because it's, it's too personal. Though mm. so you have written uh, about topics that have been personal to you in the past. Uh, do you see that, I mean, gr grief is a, a long process as well. Do you think that you might come to a stage where that could be something that you could write about as well? I just it's, don't it's know. Predict, yeah. I, I, I don't know because I'm, yeah. I'm not... A, I'm getting old myself. I mean, I'm 79 in two days' time. Okay. And I feel that's quite a sort of old age. So to find the energy to go again, to, to begin mm. again, 
is difficult. So I, I'm just really I'm carrying on, um, and and it's been a great pleasure to come to Listowel and sort of I couldn't do things for months after she died mm. and I now feel I, I can go out and see people again and talk to people and people who know what I've been through will come and tell me their stories and there's a lot of comfort in grief and I'd like to say that Ireland is wonderful at grief mm. you do grief very well in this country the English are quite tight-lipped a lot of the time not, not my friends but, but the general culture mm. unless it's a kind of it's either a misery memoir for the public or it's people avoiding talking about it at all. Whereas in Ireland, people are very um, are very willing to talk about sorrow. And I, I, I treasure that. Yeah, there is an openness here about all those things, I think. And uh, even I found the difference between the, the funeral here and in England as well is very different, isn't it? And it kind of reflects that. that that's what I've been told. And there's yeah. a kind of whole poetry of mourning and grief in Irish, which, yeah. is, which is very beautiful. Yeah. And just finally then, Margaret, um, one of my favourite stories of yours is A Day in the Life of a Smiling Woman. And what was a day in Margaret Drabble's life like when you were... In, involved in a project, a writing project, where you, I've, I've heard the amount of hours that you used to put in per day. Um, can you just tell me about, like, what was your, your daily life like when you were involved in, we'll say, writing one of your novels? Well, when I was in sort of mid-peak career and the children were still part of my life, I, which was quite, quite a big section of my life, I, I, would, I would take the children to school and then I would hop on a bus and go to a little room I rented in Bloomsbury, Virginia Woolf's a room of my own. And I'd write, write, write all day, and then I'd get back um, in time for tea. But I felt it so much easier to work out of the house. And then I decided this was a luxury, so I worked at home, because they were all leaving the house and, and, and going their own ways. But I, I, I was an evening worker. I became a morning worker. And um, I reached an age where I really didn't want to work in the evening at all. So I, I've now... I'm much better at sort of nine o'clock in the morning with a clear run of a few hours. Mm. So, sorry, I said finally, but one more I just thought it was like, what, what, when you're looking back now on your career, do you ever think about what you might have done if you hadn't found writing? Yes, you see, I longed to be an actress, but I don't think that would have worked out very well because my range was very limited. I was good at some things, but I was not really cut out to be a professional actress. Um, I, if I'd had a totally different education and a different, maybe a different gender. I'd like to have been a marine biologist because I absolutely love the sea, the river, the water, whatever is under it. I love that underwater world. And I would like to have had a career in that. I envy people who have spent their lives studying the wonders of the deep. <laughs> Thanks a million, Margaret. Thank you so much for that chat. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.